That's the kind of love we all long for, isn't it? What a beautiful, God-honoring picture of his agape love. A love that is at the very core of who God is. And a love that he has modeled for us. And it's a love that he's called us certainly to give to our spouses, but also to our kids and our friends, our family, our church, our community, our neighbors. We're called to love like God loves us. Yet what happens when we're not all that lovable? Here in our study of Hosea, we've seen God's people certainly didn't seem all that lovable. And this isn't the first time, is it? Remember uh, back in Genesis 6, God wipes out the entirety of all that he has created, a world after it saw such corruption and rebellion that he decided to start over. But he promised not to do that again. Yet here we are again as we see God looking out into that same world where children are neglected, where women are abused, where there's war and oppression, where there's gross sexual immorality and perversion. You ever look around the world today and wonder, how could it be this bad? How has our world become so bad, so corrupt, so broken, so perverted? And I would say to you, well, have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> There's really nothing new under the sun, is there? And so for me, the question isn't how could the world be so bad? It would be this, how could God continue to love us? How could God continue to love and pursue his children? And the answer is this, because God keeps his promises See, he made a covenant in Genesis chapter 12 to have a people. He said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to call you to myself. And he said to his people, you're going to be different, though. You're not going to be like the nations that are around you. You're going to be set apart from them. You're going to be monotheistic when all the other cultures are polytheistic. You're going to have one God, and that's going to be me. You're going to be monogamous in, in marriage when all of the other cultures around you uh, certainly were polygamous in their marriage. He said, because your sexual practice is going to be a reflection of your view of me. You're going to be distinct. I've set you apart to show hope in a world full of darkness and brokenness and decay. But what happens over and over Time and time again, God's people start to look more and more like the culture around them than the God who set them apart. Rather than holding true to what God had told them and living out of their identity, they adopt the practices of the cultures around them. It's got to sound familiar to us still to this day. And so God raises up a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam uh, II. We're introduced with very little background uh, information to this prophet named Hosea. A prophet that would be commissioned to communicate God's despair over the perpetual idol worship and cultural assimilation among his people. So God says to Hosea, you're my guy and I'm going to send you to my people who've turned their back on me 
and they're not going to like what you have to say, and they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to have some words that are hard for them to hear, and more than just words, your whole life story is going to be a sermon. It's going to be a message that I have for my people, and you're going to live this out so my people can see what they're really like, but also so that my people can see what I'm really like. And I'm sure Hosea thought, okay, (laughs) if that's what you have for me. But God says, but there's more. I've got a woman for you. And Hosea must have thought, amazing. Yes, a partner for uh, my ministry. Surely he will bless me with this energetic uh, woman. Maybe she'll be on the worship team or maybe she'll play the piano. Maybe she'll be the kids director. And God says, I do have a woman for you. She's going to betray you. She's going to stomp on your heart. She's going to basically chase any man that walks by. And she's going to live a life of continual sexual infidelity. I can't imagine Hosea trying to process that plan from God. The God that he loves and the God that he has given his life to serve in ministry, he must have said, but why, God? And God says to him, because I'm advancing my kingdom through your life. That's the purpose of your life, Hosea. And you know what? It's the purpose of our lives as well. But he says, you're going to be a picture of the way that I love my people They'll know about me by watching you. And so we've seen how Hosea's story played out in this series. He does marry Gomer. She is unfaithful many times over. Even having kids doesn't seem to help the deeper broken issues of her heart. In fact, the very name that Hosea gives to his children are are messages of indictment on the people of God. And yet Hosea's prophetic word continually flows out of his life, faithfully pointing God's people to this big idea, that God is unwavering in his holiness, and he is unrelenting in his love, even for his unfaithful people. We don't want to miss that. That God is unwavering in his holiness, yet he is also unrelenting in his love. For his unfaithful people. You know the story of King Arthur and his knights, the knights of the round table. He has a love. He has a woman that he has given his heart to, Queen Guinevere. He loves her dearly, yet she wanders, right? She has an illicit affair with one of the king's own men, one of his most trusted knights, Lancelot, bringing utter devastation to the king's heart. Listen, inside the heart of every man and woman is to have a love that is faithful and true, a love that would last forever. Well, where in the world do you find that kind of love? Well, in this series, we've seen that the story of Hosea is all about God's love. And we know that we experience love best through words and deeds. We've seen David give us some principles of that love, a a love that keeps coming back, a love that certainly includes consequences, and a love last week we saw that embraces emotion. 
But over and over again, we see this picture of God's unrelenting love to an unfaithful people. We'll see it again in our chapter this morning. It's an incredible ending to this book. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says of this chapter, this is a wonderful chapter to be at the end of such a book. I'd never expected from such a prickly shrub to gather so fair a flower, so sweet a fruit, but so it is. Where sin abounded, great doth much more abound. No chapter in the Bible can be more rich in mercy than this last of Hosea, and yet no chapter in the Bible might, in the natural order of things, have been more terrible in judgment. Where we looked for the blackness of darkness, behold, a noontide of light. Let's read about that light this morning. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. The final chapter of our study in Hosea, Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to Him, take away all my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride in horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will hear their, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Heavenly Father, we come to your word for life today. So desperately as your people need to hear from you, we fully recognize this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yet you and your mercy continue to pursue us and love us with a love that calls us to repentance. So would you open our eyes to see that this morning? God, for hearts that are far from you, would you draw them near to yourself in your grace and mercy today? And Father, as always, we come to your word seeking more than just information. We come seeking transformation that we would be made more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Hosea finishes with a series of moving appeals for God's wayward people to return to the Lord in order to find healing, to find restoration, to experience His unrelenting love that does something, that leads somewhere, that compels towards repentance. And so let's look at some of these truths this morning. The first is this, God's grace encourages us to repent. Uh, up until this point in Hosea, the previous chapters have shown us clearly our heart and the sin that stains it. 
And it does so with very graphic language that is meant to to, to jar us into the reality of our condition. See, we are our masters of downplaying our sin. We're masterful when it comes to looking at our sin and saying, ah, it's not that big of a deal. We kind of brush it off, right? But sin is the deepest betrayal in our hearts against a holy God. It's the betrayal of the one who says, I love you. I've called you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to provide for you. See, God's grace, what it does, it helps you and I see that we're Gomer. We're we're the ones who have turned our backs on God. We're the ones who have chased other lovers, and we do it again and again and again. And so when you hear God call you a whore, is that not a wake-up call? And you may be thinking, well, Pastor Todd, that's a bit much for a church service. I simply would say to you, you're talking to the wrong guy. I didn't write this book. These are God's words. Well, Todd, you're making me feel bad. And I'd say to you, it's not my job to make you feel good. But it is my job to tell you the truth. And you will never know the life-changing love of God until you come face to face with just how rotten to the core you are. Every one of us in thought, in word, in deed. It's amazing that God would love you. And I know that because it's amazing that God would love me in all of my sin and in all of my brokenness. But here's the calling this morning, faith family, from Hosea. Repent of your sin and return to the Lord. Don't run away from the one who's faithfully stood by your side the one who has never left you, the one who has never abandoned you. Don't run away, run towards him. Cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Listen, the reality is every one of us is a whore when it comes to the things of God. It's either are we a repentant one or an unrepentant one. That's the distinction. Which are you this morning? Can I challenge you to truly repent, not just with flippant words? Hear God calling you as he did in verse 1, return to me, come back to me. And you may say, well, Todd, what do I say? I don't know what to say. Well, Hosea is of great help here. I'll read verse 2 and 3 again, this time from the message. You can make these your words. Pray to him. Take away our sin. Accept our confession. Receive as restitution our repentant prayers. Assyria won't save us. Horses won't get us where we want to go. We will never again say our God to something we've made or made up. You're our last hope. Is it not true that in you the orphan finds mercy? What a great prayer of repentance. And let's see what we learn about repentance here from these verses from Hosea. First, we come humbly, right? There there cannot be a shred of arrogance or pridefulness that says, well, you know, I've mainly got it going on. 
No, we come in humbleness. We recognize our sin and the absolute damage that it does to our soul and the toll that it takes on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So out of total dependence, we come humbly. Secondly, we see we come with a sacrificial heart. Verse 2 in the original language actually says we offer the calves of our lips. It's a, it's a picture that repentance is costly, that a sacrifice was necessary. Now, it's not costly in the sense that we could ever bring anything that would merit or warrant God's forgiveness. It's not a, well, you're giving me this, so I'm going to give you this, and hopefully that'll work out. Not at all. But what it is, it's similar to what David says in 2 Samuel where he says, I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. I'm not just going to throw out some words here that aren't from a sincere heart because we recognize repentance requires sacrifice. Repentance is costly. We come in repentance fully aware of what it cost God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's how we receive grace and forgiveness. The third thing we see is we come renouncing our dependence on other things. Did you see the speaking against? We're going to let go of these idols that we've clung to. When, when we repent with our words, we also recognize that we're placing all of our hope and trust in the Lord. We're turning our back on, on Assyria and the war horses. Those are the things that we have run to to bring us security or comfort or, or pleasure or happiness. Fellow PCA pastor and, and counselor Chuck DeGroote says, our idols are the touchstones of the transcendent. They give us this sense of control, of access, of intimacy and connection. It's that that we're turning our backs on. These things that we have touched, that we have grabbed, that we so long to give us what we think they will, they ultimately can't. And you know it would be so easy for, for us to point the finger at, at Israel for their idolatry if we didn't have a hundred ways that we do it the exact same. That is our story. Whether it's shopping or drinking or pornography or prestige or money or wealth or reputation. Look, we long for something that we can see and taste and touch and control. We long for something that will give us what God is saying, only I can give. And so we renounce our idols. And then finally we come, lastly, declaring His greatness what we tell of what a great and merciful God that we have. And we see this picture of repentance laid out very similarly in Paul's letter to the Romans where he says that we confess with our mouth. We believe in our heart. With the heart that we believe and with the mouth we bring confession, right? So we come with words, but words that reflect the position of our heart. That reflect the posture of our heart. Words that show that I was going towards my sin and myself and these things that I thought would bring me happiness. And I'm going to do a 180. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to turn from myself by God's grace and I will repent. The second truth we see from our text this morning is that God's grace envelops us with His forgiveness. 
Can we say there is no God like our God this morning? Just like Hosea, our God buys us back, if you will, over and over and over again with His grace and forgiveness. Our humble attempts at reconciliation with God, ushered in by repentance, is always met with undeserved forgiveness. It's amazing. For those of us who are in the family of God, we get a picture here of God looking on His children who continually turn towards sin as more of a disease than a crime. Spurgeon gives us a great picture here of what this looks like when he says, My poor people, I do remember they are but dust, that they're liable to a thousand temptations through the fall, and that they go astray. But I will not treat them as though they were rebels. I will look at them as they are patients, and they shall look upon me as a physician. Do you see yourself as having a disease? Well, then why in the world would you run from the doctor? Why would you run from the great physician? In verse 4, we read, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Not I might heal them. Not I could heal them. Or I could try to heal them. But what does he say? I will heal their backsliding, their wandering, their apostasy. Faith family, I implore you to come to God for healing. And His promise is, I'll do it. I'll meet you there. God is too great a physician to allow any patient to leave His office without being healed. And the Bible says that this is our experience with God. That His one and only Son, Jesus, doesn't leave us abandoned to our sin. He became our sin We don't have to sit in our shame. Jesus took our shame. Our our great husband took our sin and shame from us, just like Hosea did as he purchased Gomer back. So church, we remember we have a husband. We run home to him. We find forgiveness. We find mercy. And say, but Todd, you don't know my story. You don't know my past. You don't know all the things that I've done. You don't know all the ways that I have messed up. You don't know all the ways that I'm disappointing God even today. You don't know who I am. You don't know how God feels towards me. And I'll say, yeah, you're right. I I don't know your past. I don't know your story, but I do know what Paul says in Romans 5. That God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we couldn't fix ourselves, when we couldn't save ourselves, that's when Christ came to the rescue. So I would say to you, come home. Come home and receive forgiveness. And then look at this picture of what he does starting in verse 5. We return to the Lord. We're forgiven and restored. And look at all these things that start to take place. Growth is restored. 
Beauty is restored. He shall grow like the lily. Strength is restored. His roots will be lengthened like Lebanon. Value is restored to us. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. Delight is restored when we see his fragrance like Lebanon. Abundance is restored. Revive like the grain. Grow like the vine. The scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Look at this amazing picture for those of us that come back. Look at what forgiveness brings. It conveys blessing and health and prosperity and security and peace. The imagery of these verses are designed to remind our our, our minds and hearts of our story. It points back to the beauty of the garden where all of these things existed perfectly the way God designed. This perfect place where God met his people and provided everything for them, for their every need and more. The picture of the garden, a place where God's uh, people not just survive, but they thrive. But we know the garden was broken because of our sin. So then what do we do? We don't have to look back. Now we look forward, church, to the garden that is being restored. The place that is being prepared for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The place where all the wrong things are made right, where all the broken things are made whole. The picture of the garden is a picture of our ending place where we dwell with him forever. God is restoring the garden for us. So we look forward with hope because there's an ultimate forgiveness and an ultimate restoration to come. We will return to the garden one day. And then don't miss the imagery of what takes place after we receive this forgiveness and are restored. Verse 6, his shoots shall spread out. Other translations say his branches will spread. The imagery is powerful here. Forgiveness grows. Forgiveness has a ripple effect. Forgiveness and restoration impacts your life, certainly, but those around you, the community around you, the church that you belong to, when God forgives and restores you, you become a blessing to others. After the war and her amazing survival of the concentration camps, Corrie Tim Boone traveled the world with her message of forgiveness, except to one place, Germany, understandably. She couldn't muster the courage to return there, but then one day she, returned, she received an invitation to speak at a church in Munich. Little did she know the message of forgiveness that she was speaking about would be put to the test. She finished her message, and she saw walking down the aisle a man coming towards her, and she froze because there standing before her stood the guard responsible for the horrific death of her sister. And he stands before her and he asks, Fräulein, will you forgive me? And he holds his hand out to Corey, but she won't take it. In that moment, she prayed softly to Jesus, I don't want to do this. You will have to help me. And she recalls that moment with the rushing of the Holy Spirit over her, that she actually reached out and put her hand in his, and this wave of warmth passed through her entire body, and she spoke boldly, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. A camp guard and a prisoner, hands clutched together. 
Corey's words about that moment, never before have I experienced the love of God so deeply. Do you see how powerful this idea of forgiveness is? See, with people, our forgiveness often just goes as far as not wanting the other person to be punished for what they did, but God doesn't stop there. His goes beyond mercy into grace, a forgiveness that results in pouring out blessings on those who have offended us. Mercy is not giving somebody the punishment they deserve. Grace is the, giving somebody the blessing they don't deserve. And in God, we receive both in abundance. Third and final thing we see this morning is God's grace empowers us to walk in wisdom. Think about all that God has said in Hosea regarding the seriousness of sin. He showed us that our, our sin is spiritual adultery, where we continually and deliberately turn from our God and His great love. And make no mistake, our sin warrants the wrath and the judgment and the discipline of God. Sin is infinitely and always more seriousness before a holy God than we imagine. And yet somehow in this divine mystery, God is holy and wrathful, yet God is loving. And God is merciful towards sinners who turn from their sin and trust in Him. And then He gives them the opportunity to walk in wisdom. And so Hosea now gives us the action step. After we've done that 180, we've turned back to the Lord. His challenge to us is keep walking forward by God's grace. Keep walking toward the Lord and walk in His wisdom. Verse 9 again, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. What an amazing hope is promised here in this last verse. God not only offers this wonderful opportunity for repentance and restoration, but then He offers us the opportunity to walk in life to the fullness, to walk restored, to walk whole, to walk healed, to walk in wisdom. Biblical wisdom is what gives us the opportunity to a successful life, but it comes by submitting to God in all areas of our lives. See, here, biblical wisdom, here's the challenge in a nutshell, to recognize and live under the authority of God who created everything in relation to His own character but holds us accountable for all that we do. If you want to truly have life, then understand the wise and discerning will continually submit themselves to the Lord and trust Him for their success, both in this life and the life to come. Faith family, let me remind you that God's greatest creation wasn't the stars that He flung into the sky, the majestic mountains that He covered our amazing earth with, but it's His eternal plan to reach the children that He loves. Heaven and earth know no greater passion than God's personal love for you and His desire to have a personal relationship with you. George Matheson learned to depend on that love. He was only a teenager when the doctors told him that he had an incurable condition that would eventually result in total blindness, and there was nothing 
that could be done to help him. But George didn't lose hope even as he was losing his sight. He continued in his studies, graduating from the University of Glasgow in 1861 at the age of 19. By the time that he finished his graduate seminary studies, he was sightless. Such a trial would cause most of us to suffer greatly, but for George, there was an even heavier blow because while he was at the university, he met and fell in love with a fellow student, and they were engaged to be married. He pulled her aside one day and broke the news of his impending blindness to her. To his astonishment and deep sadness, her blunt answer came to him with the force of a dagger to his heart. This is what she said, I cannot see my way clear to go through life bound by the chains of marriage to a blind man. She said that and she walked away. George never married. He adapted to his sightless world, but he never recovered from his broken heart. He became a powerful pastor, author, poet, even hymn writer. He led a full and inspiring life, yet occasionally the pain of that love that was lost would rear its head in his life. It did decades later at his sister's wedding. The ceremony brought back memories of the love that he lost. In response, he turned to the unending love of God for comfort, and he penned these words, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. There is a love that will never let you go. You can't win this love. You already have it. You can never lose this love. If you've wandered from it, repent and find His love waiting. Find in Jesus this love that will never let you go and then walk in that love and share that love. 